Yo-ho, Damien Roos here. I've been gone for a little while, and there's a reason. I've been working on a new show, a new podcast in which I, or we, are finally ready to share with the world. It's called the Cycling Performance Club Podcast, and you might already be able to guess, it's about cycling training, performance, and science. And this podcast is a change for me, a fun mix-up from the scripted style I've followed for the majority of my shows. It's the most collaborative project I've ever worked on, and so I wanted to share this podcast on the Semi-Pro Podcast feed. The exciting part of this show is the format. It's a panel show that's recorded live on a weekly call that we've been hosting on Clubhouse since the start of the year. We recently decided the conversations are good enough to record and make into a weekly podcast, where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss these performance-based topics. The cool thing for you is... Because it's recorded live, you're welcome to jump on and ask questions or contribute in any way. So since you've listened to the podcasts I've made in the past, I figured you might be interested in this new one as well. Ride Better Faster is not going away, and there will be episodes in the future, but I wanted to introduce you to this new show, and more importantly, to my co-hosts before getting into the first episode. Like I said, this is a collaborative project, and while I like to frame our regular panel as the scientist, the cyclist, and the coach. The fact is, we're all coaches, but we have our own strengths that we bring to this profession. Dr. Jason Boynton is a sports scientist and cycling coach. Cyrus Monk is a professional cyclist and cycling coach. And then there's me, a professional cycling coach. And this mix of strengths and personalities offers a unique take on these performance topics that we cover. I've learned a lot from both of these guys and I know you also will. So here you go. Have a listen. Alrighty. So here we are for the first podcast for the Cycling Performance Club. And I am Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach. And I am here with my panel. We've got Cyrus Monk, who is the former U23 Australian road race champion and he also races professionally right now for evil pro racing on the european tour and he's got a background in physiology that he majored in at uh, melbourne of universe uh melbourne university excuse me and um i also have with me here my coaching colleague damien roos of the semi-pro cycling podcast he's a professional cycling coach for the past eight years um with experience from athletes of all levels um so how are you guys doing doing well good doing well good good um so the for those first time listeners of course uh the the um format of this discussion or this room here is that each one of the people on the panel come to the room with a topic to discuss and then all members of the panel kind of give their thoughts on that topic and also there we're on clubhouse right now so if there are people who are in the audience that want to chime in with their own questions between um topics uh, that's fine. We'll just raise your hand and we'll get you in here and you can ask us a question or make a comment about something or, um, yeah, just participate in the conversation. So I, um, since it's my turn to host this week, I will, um, 
start out with my topic, and that is, um, since this podcast deals with um, the idea of training and performance, and a big part of that and uh, is science and sports science specifically. And there's a lot of us are into sports science. We are just kind of kind of what I pose for my topic this week is just the idea of talking um, about what does it mean to train with sports science. And it might seem like a um, kind of a mundane question, but it actually I think it is if we kind of expand upon it, it gets interesting in the sense of like, um, well, let me frame it for you. Um, if you look at, say, what any coach nowadays or even an amateur athlete that's training themselves, if you look at how they're trying to improve their performance, you know, if you start with a coach, he's going to probably increase your volume or add high intensity interval training or any number of one of these things uh, with the you know, the, with the idea of hopefully increasing performance in the end. And so this coach might not have any uh, background in science, might have not read any scientific papers whatsoever, but technically adding high-intensity interval training or increasing volume or, um, you know, making sure that you have your athlete has enough time to recover after hard workouts, these are all pretty well established in the literature. So at the very, very bare minimum, like most coaches could claim that they train with science. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, let's say, um, let's say like just for the sake of the thought experiment, you had someone who has somehow been able to read every single scientific paper that is out there around the topic of improving endurance performance and somehow can remember every single bit of that information, um, that individual with the current literature that we have right now would not be able to answer all of the training questions they would have They would have based on science alone. They would have to make some kind of decisions based on anecdotes or something along those lines. And so the, the question kind of comes down is then if basically under... You know, depending how you define it, anyone can be coaching with science or anyone can be training with science. So I think, you know, for the sake of just kind of, like I said, the philosophical conversation around the idea of training science, like maybe with you guys, Cyrus and Damien, like what that means for you to train with science and you know, going forward, do we need a harder definition around it and or does it matter? Uh, is it a marketing thing? Um, I will just open the open it up to you. I'll go to Damien first. What do you think, Damien? I think it's really interesting the the way that now we're seeing more people come into, say, the coaching world um, and pushing forward just this idea of science. But generally, there's nothing kind of backing it up. We don't see anything. Um, very specific and detailed about the types of training someone might prescribe or um, the way they may approach a problem 
in a scientific manner. So I, I see a lot of issues um, just in not communicating exactly how someone uses science. And I'm guilty of this as much as anybody. It's one thing just to stand behind it and say, oh, yeah, I use science. But um, being very clear with how that influences the way I do things, I think, is is probably a better way to go about it. Um, for me, it's not something I have actually explicitly thought about, to be honest. It's it's more probably over the years, my ha- approach um, to any sort of training problems or broader problems, um, I kind of fall back on this thing of who who has done something, who's looked into this, how can I um, step my way through this problem to find any solutions that I have. Um, and that can cover any number of different things when you talk about cycling and cycling training. Um, so the main thing here for me is to make sure that I have a process uh, and a place where I can find this information. So part of that is uh, having a database of um, scientific articles that I can refer to um, if I need to go back to something. But one of the interesting things that you brought up was this idea that even if you were the most read um, and you had the best capacity to retain knowledge, there's always going to be gaps, gaps in what's available um, in literature itself and just gaps that you just come across when you're coaching someone. I think we've spoken about this before in the way that how do you actually tell someone you're coaching what that is? Um, and, and how honest are you with how big a gap it is and whether you're just taking an educated guess and, and, and doing things. Um, and and that, that's the part for me that uh, it, it's an ongoing sort of conversation that you have with an athlete. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in Cyrus and, and his thoughts around it too. Yeah, for me, just taking it back a step, the, this sport in terms of cycling is just incredibly hard and just demanding with the training. So for me to prescribe training to anyone or to undertake it myself, if I'm going to be going through all the pain, then I want to know that it's achieving its purpose. So for me, that's where training with science is, um, yeah, I would place it at a much higher priority to to just going off what's been done before or the just causing causing pain and hoping it generates some gain. The the idea behind the training with science is that there's these things have actually been shown hopefully multiple times to these interventions create the outcome and the adaptation that we're seeking. So if I'm going out and doing hill repeats at a prescribed intensity, I know that it's going to have that desired effect on my capillary density or my muscular metabolism or mitochondria count or whatever the goal is. And in that way, I can prescribe these sessions to athletes and give them the confidence that the hard work they're putting in will yield these real physiological results rather than going out there yeah, doing all this really hard and difficult stuff and not actually seeing the improvements. So I think the training with science is just an efficiency thing to actually get the most out of your training. And as people love to say, train smarter rather than harder. But unfortunately, a lot of training is hard regardless of how smart it is. But at least if you are doing the smart training, then you will know that you're going to get the results that you're seeking. 
Yeah, it's a tricky question because like right now, uh, from my perspective, just kind of anecdotally, it seems like everywhere you turn, anyone who is trying to advertise or pitch or market um, a training plan or something, some kind of training product wants to be associated with science. And again, like getting into the kind of the thought experiment that I proposed was that like basically anybody, depending how they wanted to define quote unquote training with science could say that they're training with science or using science. And so I guess what I'm getting into is um, uh, I think Damien brought this up when we were talking about this uh, before, because uh, this is a topic that's come up with between Damien and I in a couple of times, um, is is that there might have to be this kind of new awareness in the consciousness of the athletes that are out there and the consumers of these training plans or the people who hire coaches to actually the person who is selling themselves as someone who uses science, well, be critical and then ask them what they actually mean by that. Are you reading the literature? Are you... um, you know, what does this mean? Does, I mean, because I mean, I could go and say like, well, OK, cool. Are you are. Does that mean you're a sports scientist? Does that mean you've conducted research? Does that mean you've published papers? Does that mean, you know, all of these things? Have you, I mean, have you run VO2 max tests? Have you looked at data that, you know, have you, you know, do you know run how to know how to run statistical analysis? Like you could get going down that rabbit hole really quickly and how many people that say they co- train with science have actually done those things if you but like at the same time i mean i mean that's what it takes to be a scientist is to start publishing papers and 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 doing scientific research um and so i i guess it gets it gets down to that but you, at the same time you don't want it to be an elitist thing like you know, I mean, there are standards to like what it means to to be a, a, to be published in a scientific journal. But do you have to have the same level of stringency when it comes to saying someone trains with science or coaches people with science? And I mean, here in Australia, they they do have ways to accredit sports scientists um, uh, through ESSA. But, um, yeah, there's, I mean, the accredited, the accrediting coaches and with the, the, uh, the national bodies that do that, I mean, that's a kind of a different topic, but, um, I guess, I guess where this topic goes is down into this kind of awareness for the consumer and the athlete that this idea of training with science is totally up for interpretation by the person that is marketing or pitching the fact that they train with science. Do you guys have any thoughts build on that? Either, uh, Damien? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm kind of, my mind is kind of just wandering off into, uh, this whole thing of, it really comes down to being clear about what that means to you and then how that impacts the decisions you make around training for yourself or for somebody else. Um, instead of going down this road of a complete specialist, which a sports scientist is, so that's valuable in one sense, but the idea of a coach being a generalist with access to specialists and 
and having some specialization in some area, it works together, but it's not, it's not the only skill that you need. So you don't, it's not a matter of going so far um, to the point where you do need a PhD to try and cover the breadth of information that you need to kind of be across um, to help someone else. Um, it is important for the training parts of it, and, and that's where I think it just is really important to be clear, again, in how you use it. What, where do you get the information from? How do you assess that information? Um, how does it make its way into, like, what is your vetting process and how does it make its way onto uh, an athlete's program? I think that's all part of it here. Um, but going down too far certainly I don't think is is necessary. Uh, but of course, you know, I don't have uh, a degree in physiology. So there is parts that I miss out on and parts I don't have a clear understanding or I haven't spent time learning and I would definitely benefit from more knowledge in that area and how you kind of bridge that gap with someone that doesn't want to go. And I, I don't necessarily want to go and do a full degree in this, but how, you know, how do you bridge that gap? It's not, it's not these short courses and these small things that are offered by certain places uh, and institutes. I think it has to be something that's quite detailed and does get into some very detailed processes. But, uh, you know, I don't really know what that looks like. But Cyrus kind of sits in between me and you, Jason. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts around it. Cyrus? My thoughts on that would be the plural of anecdote is just anecdotes rather than data. So, <laughs> yeah. the, the beauty of um, training with science or what it means to train with science, I would say, is actually drawing on rather than the experiences of the people you've coached previously or your own experiences, which is definitely something that's easy to fall into as a coach, um, especially given most coaches have ridden previously and, and drained previously, um, rather than always falling into that and thinking, okay, this has worked for me, it'll work for others. You're actually drawing on the studies that have checked whether it does work for others, whether it's 20 people or 100 people for an intervention. And that way, yeah, it's, it's essentially just an unbiased approach if you're training with science, I would say, rather than you're taking out personal aspects and the, the subjective aspects of the coaching and then, yeah, being able to apply what has objectively worked for larger cohorts and has seen the adaptations that you're striving to achieve, you can then apply that to your athletes. Now, obviously, like there is going to be benefits to coaching experience and a lot of other factors coming into it, as, as Damien was mentioning, mentioning before, you can't just yeah, be the, the most well-read and then apply that to uh, a coaching program and think that it's going to work fine because you've grabbed all these interventions from a heap of studies and, and chucked them in and it'll be okay. But mm -hmm. I think you're just starting it a much uh, further, further point along the, the line of towards being the perfect coach if you've got that scientific knowledge behind you and yeah all of you drawing then on, on the work of many others rather than just a few anecdotes that you have yourself yep um and i think i'll actually take 
the opposite approach uh, to it that Damien was kind of going at, you know, as as a sports scientist and someone that put a lot of time into kind of looking into the science behind increasing scientific or incre- I'm sorry, increasing cycling performance. Um, I am always surprised on like how much I have to rely on my experience as a coach to get through problems and things like that. So um, yeah, there's a lot of things I find a lot of times that I reach the end of my knowledge and I'm just like, Mel, I have to just go off the experience in this case and, and use it, use an anecdote um, because I, there isn't really like maybe a really good scientific paper on it yet, or I haven't, haven't come across it. And um, at that point, um, I, with me, if it's possible, you know, and I've had to make a decision like that, then I'm very, I try to, you know, have a conversation with the athlete if it's a big decision. And I say, well, this is, this, this decision was made based off of an anecdote or, um, my previous experience. And, but we have to come to a point where we're making a decision and, and this is how it's going to go. And, um, if, what's your thoughts? Do you have, cause what's your, you know, they're the athlete they might have you know weighing anecdotes against each other is is difficult but like if they're the ones that are experiencing the performance gains or the or the or the fatigue firsthand i mean then then obviously then their anecdotes and their experience are going to have to be played into how the decision is made as well so again that comes into the kind of that other end of the spectrum is even if you could visualize or conceptualize this person that would have all of the available scientific knowledge that is out there again like the experience um and the of their own working with coaches or even like the experience that they experienced that they had when they're training on their own or or uh racing uh when they were when they were racing i mean one of the things that i find is that you know um you know been riding for uh over 20 years now and and I still think of things while I'm out training that help me kind of empathize with my athletes. And that in, you know, again, like you can't, you have to be careful about, I mean, anecdotes are anecdotes and Cyrus, you're totally correct by saying, you know, the, the plural of anecdotes is not data. It's just, it's just anecdotes. Right. So, um, but at the same time, anecdotes are really good for, forming hypotheses and um if you don't have the lab to kind of run uh, and test the hypothesis you might have to just test it on your athlete and because that's what happens in the real world unfortunately sometimes but um yeah uh i just kind of wanted to give a little bit of contrast to 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 damien and cyrus and just kind of say well yeah as as much as you you'd want to train with science as much as possible and utilize things that um uh interventions and that type of thing that were shown to work in the literature uh a lot of times you're just going to come back to you know your own experience and anecdote um so um yeah uh so that's basically all i think i really have on this topic unless you cyrus or damien you either you guys have any more thoughts yeah i'll go um basically the the other thing i was thinking is the, which is pretty important one for me personally as a coach is my number one goal is to 
make sure that they enjoy riding their bike. So that is going to be more important than the the training benefits that they receive. Like obviously not every session is enjoyable and a lot of things are outside of the coach's control. Like if if I prescribe a session and they go out and have three punctures and, and their chain snaps, then obviously they're not going to enjoy that day. But the the majority of the time I want their, their riding to be enjoyable. So if I'm aware, especially with some athletes, that if the training becomes too focused on the adaptations and the numbers and the the science side of things, that for some athletes then it just becomes less enjoyable and they just want the chance to, uh, to be able to go out and enjoy riding their bike. So there is, for me, I also think there's – there is definitely balance in play there in terms of how much you're trying to squeeze every possible adaptation out of each minute of the training and how much of it just um, comes down to still enjoying riding your bike. So for some athletes, they need that the, the structure and the, they want to know that every minute on their bike is, is aiding them in some way towards getting results towards their goals. But yeah, for, for, I think the, the main goal to still always focus on is that you're, you're thinking of the athlete's well-being and their enjoyment of the sport. So even whichever, whichever approach you're taking, um, I think that's an important thing for coaches to keep in mind. Yeah. And if I was going to add to that, um, just a thought on that is, uh, I remember the first time I ever saw, um, Dave Martin speak at a conference and you know he he started out with that basically he had a picture of like Iron Man or a robot or something like that and he's like well it'd be great if we were training these people which would you know if athletes were robots then it would be so much easier just to train them and apply science to them but they're not and so I think I've actually written something similar to what you're saying here and I would actually make a scientific argument for what you've kind of described in in that way. I think it's just pretty good evidence out there to show that consistency um, is really important for um, improving endurance performance. So if you have a, an athlete that doesn't have a good mood, is not in a good mood a lot, or you know has uh, uh, mental health issues or anything like that, or just a touch of the blues or whatever... Uh, you know, it's going to be harder to convince them to train. So you just can't like, like I think, like you said, like you can't, can't just like slap a scientific intervention on it and, and hope they do it and then see and hope to see gains out of it. Like you have to take into consideration the, that, you know, the true, the big gains are long-term in endurance sports. So you have to really consider like, how am I going to keep this person in the sport for five, 10 years? And, you know, if I, if I over prescribe things in their first two years or whatever, and it burns them out, well, then you didn't, you've then then we've all failed, right? Like the athletes failed and to put their foot down with you and you've failed to, um, to identify that, uh, uh, that they, that they can't train in the way that you would hope they would. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree, um, but I would, I would, you know, probably put a scientific spin on that. And um, yeah, I guess um, 
Damien, you're the one with the psychology background. Um, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that before we, because it's it's kind of meandered into a little bit of psychology there. Not specifically, but I do um, agree with your thoughts around if you're looking for long-term gains, you need to add up years rather than weeks and months. And uh, Mm -hmm. that really depends on um, the training matching the athlete, uh, their personality, their motivation, all of that stuff. So I think that that is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess that's all I have on that. I will go to uh, Cyrus. You had a topic this week that was pretty interesting. Um, Why don't you lay that out for us here? Yeah, one that's been on my mind this week and pretty topical with the weather in Europe over the last month or so is uh, training in the cold and and often wet as well if we look at the last month. And this has just come to the front of my mind with the Giro last week. And I've been training in the, the kind of weather myself for a fair bit, but hadn't really thought of it in this way until I um, looked in the the Facebook comment section of one of the the posts about the Giro, which is always a good place to, to find some out there opinions. But there was one that um, popped out that said when after cancer, after shortening one of the stages due to the, the weather and labelled extreme weather and there's a lot of people arguing about whether it was really extreme uh, just because it was raining and, and cold. But one of the comments was that no one these days is training in cold weather. Like they're, they're never being forced to go out and train in, in cold weather. And this is the reason that they can't do it in a race and sort of thought about that. And I thought I've never once prescribed a cold weather training or a wet weather training to an athlete. And it's never been in, in any program I've received or, I've never had someone say to me, oh, you need to, you need to practice riding in the cold or, or practice riding in the wet more. So I just, I'll let you guys chip in first and then sort of come back in myself. But yeah, Jason, did, is that something in your, obviously you've looked a lot at heat training, but has, has you looked much at the inverse in terms of cold training and, and what benefits this might yield? Um, yeah, actually, um, yeah, well, the being the with the environmental temperature stuff um, because of the because of the because uh, of the kind of the, pr- the proposal that I had, I had to kind of at least investigate a broad range of the temperature spectrum, and so uh, I guess I would first. T- I mean, we'll get into the physiology of it first. Um, I mean, there's this also gets into one of the conversations or the first study I had in my PhD where uh, this, you know, this kind of anecdote of the Australian athletes training in the summertime and then, you know, traveling over and then getting hit with the cold train with the cold weather of the classics during the early spring months and you know this is just kind of this anecdote that going around um green edge or team bike exchange now um about how the athletes are affected by this temperature change and so that kind of i think dovetails with your um topic here a little bit 
And so um, physiologically, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a few things that would be going on uh, there potentially. Um, like, like, and it gets kind of complicated, but like, you know, one of the thoughts that was, is that maybe, uh, maybe we need to do some cold acclimation, uh, to, to get these athletes ready for this. Um, and then, but like cold acclimation is complicated when it comes to endurance athletes and, and that gets complicated, more complicated than heat because, um, okay, well, are you going to do are you going to do exercise while you're um, acclimating for cold? Because if you're going to do the exercise, then you're increasing your core temperature. And if you're increasing your core temperature, then you're not going to see a whole core, a whole body core temperature drop. Um, and there is going to be uh, potentially different adaptations for that whole body core temperature drop. Um, however, um, and I saw a little bit of this in my research, and there was a little bit of this in like Lorenzo at all, uh, that you can see like kind of localized skin adaptations from regular exposures um, to cold. And so you can so you get this get this localized um, skin adaptation, then, uh, would that affect performance and would it help performance? Cause you would, and how does that interaction with the environment, um, affect your, your riding? And is it something that you should spend time doing? And that's, um, a really interesting question. I mean, there's for, there's one study that I've seen with looking at basically, cold weather athletes versus normal athletes that were matched and they found that the athletes who were, had cold exposure had a better economy when exercising in the cold and that's a pretty big deal for cycling i mean if you're going to ride for a long period of time and you have a higher amount of uh, higher economy then you're going to potentially have a, a high, economy or efficiency efficiency um, in this case um, and so you would have a, a potentially more carbo- carbohydrates around and you know there's this talk about uh, about cold bonk occurring and people not being able to eat enough in the cold so there's all of these concerns and you know that, that would make you think well maybe we should be looking at um, acclimating people for these conditions um, but that's a whole, like, I think I'll stop the, stop right there and pass it on to either of you guys, if you have any comments before I get into the practical side and, and that type of thing. But like, that's, that's the physiology that I've come across is that, yeah, you, there is a bit of a potential here that cold acclimation could improve performance in the cold. But then when we get into like the pragmatic side, I think it's a little bit of a, it's a rabbit hole. Yeah, I, um, I, I had this conversation this week actually with an athlete talking about how crazy the, the weather in, in Europe has been uh, this season. And we were kind of thinking about ways that we would um, ensure that being best prepared for whatever weather it is, whether that is hot or cold. 
And of course, we leaned on the side of, you know, this athlete's generally been in the cold. They go to a hot race, they suffered. Um, and we have ways that we can, um, we can look at that and, and try and adapt for that and train for that. But going the other way, it was like the question was, is there any harm? Is there any harm in, do, in being out in the cold? Um, when, yeah, generally I feel like everyone in Europe gets exposed to cold uh, a lot. So I'm kind of curious um, why, these, why people would have an impression that people aren't training out in, in the cold in some way. Um, you can't escape it in Europe pretty much. Um, so it's, 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 I don't know, it's, it's more like that um, heat uh, coming on quickly would be the problem um, that I would see. Um, most people I know that do longer rides, you know, hate indoor trainers, so they would prefer to go out um, in the cold. But then the question really for you, Jason, is like, um, is there a problem? Um, you know, like, um, if you're going to train, uh, if you're going to be in the cold anyway, like what extra? Hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, gets, it gets tricky because one of the thoughts I have, um, and again, I would like to see a, a good experiment done on this is, is, you know, it, when you expose your skin to the cold, it, what happens is that your skin temperature will increase um, if you go back to like 22 degrees or the heat. At least that's what I've seen. And there's pretty good connections about, about with skin temperature and aerobic economy and... Um, and also uh, skin to temperature gradient, which is again comes back to skin temperature. So if you ha- lose this ability to transfer heat waste, even at a temperate condition, in a temperate condition, you know there's the potential that um, you're gonna mess with your uh, gross mechanical efficiency. And you're, you know, you potentially have heart rate increases, increases in RPE or rate of perceived, rate of perceived exertion. But again, you don't want to scare anybody with it. And, um, it's one of those things where, um, you know, weather's unpredictable and, and are you going to spend this much time to get, prepare someone for riding in the cold? And then what happens if they don't have it? the weather doesn't go the way you, you predicted and then it gets really hot and you mm-hmm. didn't, you didn't get them ready for the heat. Um, like you should have. Um, so the, the preparing for the colds, I mean, I think it's a, a more valid question for the Australians, uh, mm. because of coming from the heat and never really getting good cold exposure. Um, but for the, uh, for, for just yeah for for the europeans i would say they just kind of let it lay you know and like they've gotten the exposure from ever since they were young and it's in and there's not as much research on cold acclimation as there is for heat acclimation um but uh i know i, I don't know how where to insert this so i'll just insert this here i think i have come across a little bit of 
research with the military because the military with their Navy SEALs, you know, if they're going to prepare somebody, if they're going to get them heat acclimated to go into, uh, say, a hot environment like Iraq or Afghanistan, um, that's one thing. But the other thing is like SEALs do scuba diving and training underwater, which is going to be cold. So they're going to get regular exposure to cold and they might also get regular exposure to heat so that they can be ready for these hot environments or missions in the hot environments. So I think there was one paper that I came across that kind of dealt with that. And from what I saw was that um, they didn't see the, a reduction in the heat acclimation with these, with these military personnel. But of course, when you're talking about military personnel versus like high, high-end elite aerobic endurance athletes that's something that's different and you know like something small like changes in uh vascular adaptations in the skin could potentially be that percent or two that changes their ability to perform in a in a race right in a temperate race or a hot race so it does get down a a little bit of a rabbit hole but that's just the physiology side of it um I don't know if you, Cyrus, if you had any thoughts on the on the physiology. Yeah, yeah. So I um, I did manage to find a pretty good review paper on this out of Japan, which had obviously Japan's going to be one that this plays massively into effect mm-hmm. because they've got some crazy cold temperatures mm-hmm. and the basically as you guys were sort of pointing out earlier the the thing that's like highlighted across all the studies they looked at is athletes are good thermoregulators compared to general populations. And that's obviously due to all the, the cardiovascular advantages that they've got and the, like the capillarization and the actual, the dynamics of that being able to change that around is, is going to benefit them in those situations anyway. Mm -hmm. So that was, yeah, you're already looking at a population that's better at it than most. And then you, the, in terms of race results in these crazy cold temperatures, then you're just looking at the best of the best and the differences between them. So you sort of can, you look at someone that is suddenly 5% worse than everyone else in the cold and everyone says, oh, they can't handle the cold at all. When in reality, they're handling the cold far better than the majority of the population would. They're, they're just not quite as good as as some others and um, the other one that's obvious across um a lot of the literature is body fat percentage like just straight up an in- insulation perspective and sort of from watching bike races you can can see that the smaller riders tend to be the ones that struggle like and mm-hmm. that's that's purely just from looking at it but the you see the really super lean riders with often much lower muscle mass even are, um, and obviously lower body fat percentage. They're the ones that are struggling because it's obviously going to drop the core temperature much faster when they're in those situations and because they're producing less heat themselves from a, a thermoregulatory perspective because the actual power output is going to be lower on these mountain stages. So that's going to be less heat production because if you look at the kilojoules spent from a, a 55 kilo rider going up a climb compared to an 80 kilo rider in the group they're going to still be putting out a lot more watts even though they're riding slower 
And um, then obviously there's the speed perspective there as well. So from a performance aspect, yeah, there's a lot to take into account there. So whether you should, yeah, the, the main thing I was, was thinking about is whether I'd still prescribe any cold adaptation for certain riders that I think may need it and may be higher risk than others. But I still can't see myself putting it in a program because as you guys have touched on already, you don't, if you're doing seven rides a week, which most riders are or six, there's going to be a few of those which are in pretty crappy weather. And the, especially for riders training in winter or riders going on altitude camps now, they're going to be exposed to the cold. The, the main thing would be whether when they're exposed to those temperatures, they're actually experiencing the muscle temperature getting low enough to, to cause any of the adaptations. So that's obviously the big thing here is what temperature the, the working muscles are at. So I think you'd find the majority of the time, even in that cold training, because riders have access to all the gear and they can stop and put a jacket on and they can um, make sure that they're not going to get stuck on a really long descent with minimal clothing. They're able to keep that muscle temperature higher. Whereas in a race, there's more situations where, for example, I had one in, in a race in Spain in April, which would usually not be that cold, but it was, uh, it was around six degrees, but there's just a, a 30k slight downhill where you're essentially not pedaling so there's no thermal energy produced well relatively low thermal energy produced in the body compared to what you'd get on a training ride and no access to more clothes because you're in a race situation so yeah it's wet and cold and then definite performance performance losses there like across that peloton um just if you look at the the power that guys were able to put out at the end of that race would be much lower. So whether you'd actually be able to see gains from telling people to go out and and put themselves in that situation in training or whether the risk would be too high is definitely something to, to look at because, yeah, the, the risk versus reward on that is going to be a big factor if you're asking someone to to actually get their muscles to that temperature during during a training session, then their core body temperature is obviously going to be a lot lower as well. And there's yeah, obviously a lot of risks associated with that. So whether that's something that's actually going to be useful on in a training program and encouraged, I don't know whether as a coach I would be able to to prescribe that because I think the health and safety of the athlete would, um, I think I'd be placing that in a higher regard to the actual benefits that could be gained from that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts? I only now kind of moved to the practical kind of aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some ways it is beneficial, um, you know, like, maybe not necessarily for motivation if someone had to go out day after day in the rain and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's an element of not being turned away if it is a race day and you can't move the ride um, and you have to go out there and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how inbuilt that is. Some people just 
love the rain and the really tough conditions and maybe yeah. because they do respond better naturally. Yeah. Um, but there, there is something to be said about actually just um, being able to cope with, um, with rain when it is on race day, mm-hmm. um, let alone the sort of other things like bike handling, mm-hmm. um, the downhill skills, just being able to move around in a bunch, for example, when you're all fogged up and your hands are frozen and trying to eat and things, um, putting clothes on and off, all these practical things um, that you should probably have a handle on. Um, and if you don't, then it, it might be useful to just get thrown in and, and do something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, I, I'm with Cyrus here. It's, it's risky. Like there's big risks. Like it might not pay off and something like this, it, it may give you a little game, but the the risk and the downside may be so much greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, we're just kind of talking about pro riders, right? The most of the people that are going to listen to this podcast are going to be amateur riders. And so um, maybe, and this is how I kind of talk about bad weather riding with, with my athletes. I say there's, there's two ways that you can approach this in order to keep your fitness up and be consistent when the weather is poor outside. Um, you can go the, the route of the, the, the pimped out indoor training area, right? You can, you can have the the big TV, uh, all of the apps, the Zwift, everything set up indoors. Um, the, the, the smart trainer, all that type of stuff. So that if you, you know, if you, it's a Saturday and you know, you're on a, on a build to a big race coming up in a month or, or so. And you have to get that workout in because that's when you have to get it in. Cause you have a day job. Uh, then, you know, sitting on, sitting on a trainer and staring at a wall isn't going to be the do it. So throwing some money at all of these things that kind of entertain people, uh, to do big rides and that type of stuff indoors is one approach. Um, and then the other approach, which I've actually, this is how I've gone because living in Perth, uh, allows me to do this, but I've also done it as kind of how I approach it in the U S but in Perth, it's it, the worst the weather's going to get is going to be rainy and like four degrees. So I'm probably not going to get myself out to ride in that, but, um, however, if, if it looks like it's going to be like sketchy about like oh I might, I might get hit rain for, hit with rain for a little bit and i might not i might get not have any rain i don't know it just looks like it's 40 percent chance of rain and i'm like i want to get a 30 a three hour ride in or four hour ride in today so and i don't really have all the setup stuff for the uh the trainers and all that kind of stuff so what i've opted so you bought for a good jacket so uh, this is yes exactly so, um, well, it's going down that route. So I have a bike with full fenders uh, and disc brakes, nice. cross bike, full fenders. I have a GABA, um, uh, a GABA jersey, which is like the, like one of the most amazing piece of garment you can have, especially for like Perth. That basically like this time of year, it becomes like Team Castelli because everyone has a has a GABA on. Um, and you know like you have all the wet weather gear not only that but uh i have a like a nine liter uh saddlebag on the bike and if it looks like i might 
if it looks like I'm, I might get caught out in something, I'll throw like proper, proper rain pants in it and I'll pr- throw like a proper uh, rain jacket. So, you know, if I get hit, if it looks like I'm going to hit with, with a downpour, like at the farthest part point out from my ride, I can get off the bike, throw on that so I don't like suffer hypothermia or something like that, you know. So I definitely want to point out here that uh, this obviously you're not from Australia because this is way over prepared for any Australian rider. Like putting fenders or mudguards on a bike is pretty rare. Might be yeah. more common these days, but yeah. yeah. And then having some sort of uh, gear outside of just a jacket is pretty rare as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously you've got experience from bad weather. Yeah. That's from, yeah. Bringing, bringing that across. Yeah. That's from living in Wisconsin. Right. So, I mean, we, we used to have, I started a, a ride in like 2006 called the Monday night meathead ride. And we'd meet every Monday and we would ride around the lake and it was from November until March. So, and it was only during the coldest months of the year. And so, and I was leading that ride. So I'd have to come out and, and you had like three, four, five, th- three or four bikes set up for the winter. Um, cause you just switch swap all and like, oh, this one's for my sloppy winter days. Here's the one for the snowy winter days. Here's the one, for, you know, um, here's the one for the icy winter days. So like that mentality of like trying to, uh, stay on top of fitness through weather. That's absolutely horrible. Like, you know, sometimes I would do like my interval training on the trainer inside. And then to get some more K's after that, I would go switch and change into something else into the winter gear and go outside and ride for two hours or something like that outside so that, um, I didn't have to sit on a trainer for like three hours, uh, and then still get the bike handling and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's probably not exactly what Cyrus had in mind when he brought that up, but like when you kind of post pose that topic, uh, earlier, that's kind of where I was thinking about like, you know, do, how do you, how do you deal with just like when the weather goes to crap and you have to keep up on the training. And so, you know, this is one of those things where like throwing money at it can help because if you have enough money, you can buy, you can have both those scenarios for you, um, of the awesome pimped out indoor trainer and the, um, whole kind of, uh, awesome bike with full fenders and all the pimp rain gear. So, yeah. Yeah. That's where I was going to, going to plan on taking the topic. Like the, now the end goal is that you should never be getting cold (laughs) in in a race as well. Like, because we know it's detrimental to performance when your muscle temperature drops below that, that temperature mark. So the idea is that you, you shouldn't be getting to that point anyway. And so that would be the main thing I would enforce to athletes is do whatever you can to, to stay warm in the race. So that it, that's the goal. And then obviously you st- still see there is, is cases where that doesn't happen in bike races and you, you can't get the clothing there. But I think that is a priority that athletes need to to be aware of, particularly I think in Australia because they're not exposed to it. If you get someone racing in winter that hasn't got cold before and they think, ah, oh, this, this will be fine, it 
it doesn't matter I warm up when riding and they haven't been sort of experienced to those extremes they they're not prepared for the the loss in performance that like they they they're sort of underestimating how much that will be so I think educating your athlete on the importance of that thermoregulation and the fact now that we have the technology to to do that with with clothing compared to to what's what's been in the past like i can't imagine going out and doing those stages in a woolen jersey but the that that aspect of things i think it's important to educate athletes on that because yeah if if they're neglecting that coming into a race then they're, they're setting themselves at a massive disadvantage to everyone else yeah um so i have one uh hand raise in the audience i will add one more thing to before we get to donald here um one of the things that to think about that we there's kind of off another thing that around this whole topic of the australians coming over that i have thought about and hypothesized around is that um if you're coming from the heat and you're riding in hot conditions all the time and say you're riding in 30 35 you might be used to training in that heat all the time, but you like the optimal temperature for performance is going to be around 10 to 13 degrees. And so one of the thoughts I had was that maybe Australian cyclists are overdressing. And so their microclimate there is up to like 27, 30, 35, when all the people who have uh, trained in cold more often their microclimate is going to be closer to that 10, 15. So they're dressing in such a way that allows more that allows them to utilize the cold conditions to cool their body and perform better. Um, so because there's always the issue of once you start putting clothes on, even if it's really cold out, you still have the now you have to still worry about overheating, right? So um, that was one of the things that, that I was thinking about specifically for the australian athletes but it could happen to a european athlete as well where they're like oh you know i'm going to go out it's this it's going to be this cold today and then they start climbing or something like that and they have a jacket or something that they can't peel it off and their body temperature and core temperature and skin temperature gets to a point where it's actually starting to be detrimental to their performance so that's also something to consider um but uh, so I'll, I'll let Donald come on stage. Uh, just so you know, Donald, we don't have um, we don't have the actual room mic'd up. So um, if you have a question, I might be repeating it. So um, oh, I think you should be coming on. Yep, you just have to unmute yourself there. Which yeah, what, yeah, what you got for us? So Donald is asking. You know, his coaches had him go out and um, ride with mountain bikes um, in New York as as during the winter as a form of training, and they would do that in a pack. Um, and he is asking if we would do something similar uh, in Wisconsin. And I, I would answer that as saying, I've never seen anything like that organized, um, but I wouldn't be totally unheard of. Uh, one of the things that I actually kind of really miss about winter, I, I never miss winter 
people people you don't miss winter you only miss parts of winter <laughs> that's what i say um but yeah one of the things that i really liked about winter is the fact that it it's you know it gives another dimension to your cycling and so uh, riding on snow with i had i had a single speed mountain bike with 26 inch wheels and i had uh spike tires on it with metal spikes on it, it had four rows of uh, metal studs and i loved riding that thing when 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 there was a nice like powder layer uh out on the roads with just a tad bit of uh compacted snow underneath it it was amazing to ride so um it you know if it's kind of like if you have to ride in those like cold conditions at least there's something like technical and entertaining about it and something that's different than riding on the road and something you can't experience during the summer um that's kind of like one of the upsides of it uh the whole fat bite thing uh i haven't back i've been back in the winter in wisconsin in a while but like that all totally blew up well uh, I was there and it was got really big and I actually never got a fat bike but yeah there's b- massive amount of people that would that would uh do fat biking and there I actually knew people that were that they would almost stop riding during the summer cuz they were just like fat bikers they're like ah I just like doing fat bikes so um yeah and so the fat bike thing is really big like riding on the lakes um and in madison there was a bike path it was like like um not like a commuter path but it was like a nature path that just kind of like circled below the city and and someone would just plow it they never knew who it was this person would just plow it and so that just and there would always be like a little bit of snow on it but it was uh plowed enough where like you could still ride it um, so I'd ride that on a, on a cyclocross bike, uh, and it'd just be super fun to be, you know, keeping yourself upright. Sometimes I'd have studded tires on the cyclocross bike. Sometimes I'd just use, um, like, a like a standard st- cyclocross tires, but yeah, like, um, it's, it's good for, for bike handling and, and that type of stuff. But again, it comes down to where training conversations always go is kind of the risk benefit type of thing. So you know, you have to be careful, you know, is it, you know, you don't want anyone to fall down and break a hip or break an arm or something like that. But at the same time, um, if it keeps people entertained, uh, during their training, cause, um, training and, uh, cycling training during the winter is really difficult and I don't miss it. <laughs> I much rather be, yes, yes, you do. Uh, Donald just saying how you certainly practice how to to fall properly so yeah um it's it's uh something definitely something to um that adds adds a whole new dimension to it but at the same time i'll I'll go i'll say it again i don't miss winter i just miss some parts of winter so um with that said damien you want to introduce your topic so the thing that's been on my mind this week or the thing I've been thinking about the most is uh, after an athlete had a crash last week that he's been off the bike for one week and just the process of getting back up to speed again um, with minimal losses to any type of 
fitness that he and adaptions that he's made up until this point because we're kind of really in the middle of the year here um so it's not an ideal time i don't know if there is an ideal time to crash (laughs) but uh just sort of things that i've been thinking about to focus on um the biggest concern that athletes usually have is other than i'm losing fitness is that i'm gaining weight um but i think nutrition is a really really important part of this um it it's the fuel that's going to let your body heal as much as anything um so just keeping a like it's not necessarily that you have to um record all the food you're having but just being um, cautious about what you're eating, making sure that everything that goes in your mouth um, is going to do a job. So not micronutrients, protein, the building blocks to try and get the body back. Um, and other than that, the the training, once, once the person can train again, the big thing for me is probably just starting out with steady endurance, but making sure that um, the legs aren't doing any work so there's no not a lot of tension in the legs because they still need to heal um so just focusing on uh on very low intensities and and trying to extend that till we're at a duration that's of um that's meaningful for me that's probably four or five hours um and then just slowly introducing um a little bit of intensity to see what happens and kind of take it from there but I, i am interested on um approaches that both of you would have to this um so if you want to start cyrus yeah i think it's a a really good topic and it's a really interesting one because we often look at returning from illness or i guess in terms of returning from like overtraining is a common one or illness as a result of overtraining where it's the result of the training in the first place or the like recovering from a race, for example, where you've obviously done damage, but it's not the same damage as a a crash. So this kind of recovery is, yeah, really interesting how you balance the training because it's something that's been completely out of the athlete and coach's control that's caused the, the stop in the training in the first place. So it's always unplanned and then, uh, it's a matter of yeah how you adapt to to overcome this so i think one big aspect for the athlete is just the the mental side obviously because it's usually super frustrating you're missing out on races know that you're losing fitness or gaining weight or whatever that might be so i think it depends on the injury but the majority of the time you won't have an injury that is whole body thing you're not in a cast so if you've you're not in a whole body cast so if you if it's a leg injury just something this is just for the mental side to begin with each day doing something upper body and obviously you don't want to be putting on upper body mass so it might not be weights it it might literally be stretching it might be like anything even just arm cardio like whatever you can think of arm circles like uh yeah just literally going on youtube and finding something where you can wave your arms around it's not going to be that beneficial the actual aerobic load is not going to be that high but from a mental standpoint that's going to be really good for an athlete because you find the majority of athletes just get in the routine of 
doing something every day and feeling tired at night from their workout. So if you suddenly take that away, that's a really difficult mental challenge for athletes. And often that's what leads to the weight gain in terms of poor diet choices in that time, whether it's comfort eating or just thinking, well, there's no point now anyway. I'm not even an athlete anymore because I can't train for this period. So I think just prescribing something, even if the, it's not going to be that useful for whatever reason because you've had an injury. So, yeah, if it's the classic collarbone and it's still too early to even ride on the trainer, even if you're just doing a few squats here and there or some lunges or something like that, just so that the athletes still can stay in that routine and, and feel like they're, they're working towards something. And then obviously as the injury comes on further, then you can look at your rehab once you've started doing the rehab and, and program that in. So I think there are ways the coach can help in that aspect. And that's really comforting as an athlete if you have that prescription of something to do each day. So you think, right, I have to get this done whether yeah whether it's that going to be that beneficial to you riding or not isn't isn't actually that important it's more the the mental side of things and then yeah touching on the the diet i think a lot of the times it's easy to panic about the weight gain because your glycogen stores will fill up straight away because you're not training you you obviously chuck on a heap of water weight from that and then the other thing is the first two or three days after a crash tend to be most difficult um, or first two or three days after stopping training because your body's still used to consuming. Like if you're, you're training hard, you're consuming 4,000 calories a day um, anyway. So your body's still thinking, no, I need all this food. When if you're, if you're down to an output of 2,200 calories suddenly because you're not training anymore, then yeah, obviously there's going to be the big surplus there, but the the body does adapt to that after some time. So I think, I think first off, like that first week, mental side is should be paramount, and that that will aid the diet and prevent the weight gain, and then put the cyclist in a better position to be able to start their training, like a, a better mental state once they're able to coming back from an injury. I'd have to say that. One thing that we didn't bring up is um, the doctor. So if it's bad enough where they had to go to a doctor, as a coach, um, I would just, you know, I always defer to the doctor. I, you know, um, I'd, that's not that's none of my business. I'm not gonna and and I would try to get my athlete to do what the doctor prescribes. Um, and follow their recommendations and you know if we don't like what the doctor says maybe you can get a second opinion if you think if you don't but um it's definitely i think it's really important to kind of make sure that the you're following the guidelines of of what the medical professionals have prescribed um like you know because you don't want again it comes down to the long-term development of the athlete you know you don't want to get them back on a bike too soon after a concussion or some other kind of break and then they fall down again and you know then they have bigger problems um because they've fallen twice uh and have fallen on onto something that was already injured um but then again uh, like cyrus is saying it comes down to like what the a lot of it's going to kind of come down to what the injury is 
Um, you know, if it's a you know broken collarbone, it's pretty pretty common. Uh, and if it's just a broken collarbone, then I would imagine the the doctor's just going to say, well, you know, don't ride your bike outside for this amount of time because I don't want you to re-injure it. And then you've got a you've got an athlete that's on a trainer, and um, hopefully they have some pimp trainer set up that's going to allow them to ride on the trainer a lot. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I thought I had another thought, but uh, yeah, I think it's just then everything is going to be down to the individual, I think. Um, and, you know, one of the thoughts I had during this is because I've injured myself pretty bad in a, in a crit. And, you know, if you have an athlete that's really in tune with their data and watches their PMC uh, or their performance management chart or their training load model, uh, this might be a good time to not have them look at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, cause it's not going to do anything that's good for them. So might, you might have like a real conversation with them. I'm like, you know what, maybe right now you should not look at, be looking at data maybe. And unless you're like prescribing serious zones or whatever, then, uh, you know, if they're bothered by the numbers that they're seeing during intervals when they get to that point, and maybe they're not looking at that, maybe they're doing it off of feel uh, or based off of effort, just things like that. Um, and then, again, uh, to kind of address this in through an amateur cyclist lens, you know, the, you, you get someone that's, uh, you know, a master's rider or something like that and that has a day job and they get injured in a bike race. That adds a whole other can of worms. Like, you know, are they going to be able to make money and 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 work at their job? And is is that okay? And like, how how long are they out from that? What's do they have family obligations? You know, um, how hard is it for them to get around now? Can they still drive their car? And uh, so that type of thing. That that adds you know this uh, an injury um on a bike for a an amateur athlete could have a whole other uh, load of factors that could be negative affecting them and training might end up being like the last things on their mind so you know as a coach that works with amateur athletes like you you know you have to take in those things into consideration because um as even if there's a super focused amateur athlete um it's not their main focus they're going to have other things going on uh just because they have to support themselves so yeah that was just one thing i kind of wanted to point out about the injuries is again like looking at it through an amateur lens and not just through the at a, as it, in terms of a professional writer you guys have any thoughts for me the biggest thing that i uh that i've picked up from this is it's around this reframing of things and uh, the ability to not just go to somebody, ah, oh, you'll be right. You know, you'll lose some fitness now, but you'll come back stronger. I don't think anybody responds well to that. Um, it's, it's much better to have a practical way to build people up. So, yeah, put the coaching cap on and, like, is there any limiters that you couldn't hit before? Um, you know, do, it, will you benefit from doing more mobility work? Because, and you can do it because that part hasn't been injured or whatever. I think 
taking those steps that i think that's really really good advice um and uh something that you have to work yeah you both have to work together coach and athlete i think have to work together to find to find the thing because some people just want to be left alone but there is there is that danger of spiraling down the negative hole um and and ending up in a place you don't want to be and it's very hard to get out of that so kind of just making sure that uh you're both working towards something um even though even if it's not writing i think that's the biggest takeaway for me yeah uh yeah that's that's obviously what i went over before and then the other thing is also just encouraging the athlete to take the most to make the most of having a break um bad pun not intended there but, um, <laughs> the, being able to to do something else now obviously like a lot of injuries sort of stop you being able to do too much and then also we're now in a time where you might not be able to do anything anyway because of covid restrictions but the being able to yeah make the most of because most athletes now are, are training year round, whether it's professionals or amateurs, because there's always some kind of racing going on. Um, so you won't like it, the you might have the the break at the end of the season, but the the season's now eleven months or whatever. So if you've got a, a chance to actually take that time out and sort of refresh, then it's better to make the most of that. Yeah, and then obviously in, in that regard if you spend that whole period being negative and thinking about how bad it's going to be for your cycling, then it's, it's hardly a break. So I think, yeah, it's a matter of reframing it, taking the the positives out of it, which is obviously difficult in that situation and easier for everyone to say than to do. But if you can do that, then you can sort of look back at the end of a season and, hopefully say that wasn't so bad. I got to chill out there and in two months meant I was still feeling good in these races rather than feeling like I'd been going on forever throughout the season and was past my best. So, yeah, the the reframing I think is really important. Do you think it's worth um, talking to athletes and saying that you, the chances are you probably will have a crash or an injury? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so because a lot of psych or an illness as well, like a lot just, uh, yeah, forget that that's happening. And especially with newer athletes coming through that are on this constant rise, the first point where they have a crash or an illness or a form slump is the highest risk to them leaving Mm. the sport Mm. I've found. And I'm sure you could find data to support that. But so often you see these riders that will come across from running or just pick up a bike and they're on this meteoric rise and then hopefully they, they jump on with you as a, a coach, like that's the dream athlete, when and you look at their numbers and go, wow, this is this is crazy. This person's barely been racing or riding a bike there. And then with a bit of structure, they keep improving. I think it's a good idea to let that rider know after they've been with you for a bit, look, this isn't going to go on forever. Because if they've got the idea in their head that uh, each month I've put an extra 10 watts on my FTP, this will keep happening. At some point, they'll either plateau naturally or have a crash or illness. And that's when, yeah, the mental toughness comes into it 
and the reality is every well there's only two types of riders those who have crashed and those who are about to so everyone's going to have that at some point that's part of the sport and you see now almost everyone racing at the the world tour level at some point has to come back from some kind of adversity so it's if you can't do that then you you won't be successful in the sport so i think that's that is important for athletes to understand that and perhaps with warning that might make it a bit easier when it does Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I've been on that trajectory as well with athletes, knowing that at some point something's going to happen. Um, And it may not be a crash. It may just be not being able to hit the numbers because your body's just had enough because it just needs to rest or whatever it is. Um, And, yeah, how do you have that conversation? Do you have that conversation before it happens or do you somehow have a plan because you, when it does happen, um, and it's interesting you bring up the World Tour stuff. There's two riders I'm keeping an eye on at the moment. I don't want to say names, but there's two riders in the World Tour at the moment I'm keeping an eye on because things haven't gone their way this year. So I'm really curious how they will bounce back. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the tough thing with that conversation would be the timing because obviously when someone goes out and does a new best 20-minute it's probably not best to burst their bubble straight away and say, look, I know you've been going really well, but you're going to be going bad at some point. Like it's, and then I think, yeah, I think maybe if when there's a session that they're annoyed, they haven't hit the numbers, because even if you have an athlete on a, on a really good trajectory, there'll be a, a point where they have a bad day or a point where something happens during the ride and they, they're a bit annoyed that, they um they couldn't do the session properly. And I think that's probably what I would think is the best time to do that. I haven't haven't done that so much myself, but yeah, maybe to address it then that look, you'll have bad days, you'll have bad weeks, and you'll you'll have bad months. And then like even yeah, but as as you go on, there's a good chance you have a bad season. Like I my twenty nineteen I separated my AC joint three times. Like Crashed, crashed on it earlier in the season and then, yeah, re- recovered okay, was just getting back to form, crashed again and then that was super frustrating and then, yeah, it happened again right at the end of the season and I thought, right, well, that's that's it. I'm, I'm sick of this. Like, this is um, super annoying. But I think the you just have to reinforce that all the adaptations that you've worked towards are already there. Personally, I know from my own testing previously that my heart, for example, is twice the size of the average heart through the training I've done already. And that's not shrinking back down just because I've crashed and hurt my shoulder. The capillarization and the other changes within the muscle is still going to be there and they're not going to vanish completely after a few weeks off the bike. So all that hard work isn't down the drain just because you've had a crash there's often really no reason that the athlete can't come back better and stronger as much as it is a cliche. So I think if you can give the athlete some perspective of these are the adaptations you've had so far and we can build further on these once you're back, then that can be really beneficial. Um, Yeah, I think this this really kind of gets down into a conversation about grit and and uh, how gritty your athlete is and um, I think especially with pro athletes but like maybe you know just good endurance athletes in general 
especially adult ones, um, there's going to be a certain amount of grit. Like I think the, in this in endurance sport and in cycling, there you're you're going to be on one side of that bell curve for the amount of grit that you have with the people that you're working with. So people who have grit are going to push through adversity, whether it's a crash or an illness or bad power numbers. And so, and we could talk about grit in in terms of the pure uh, psychological measurable uh, aspect, or we can just talk about grit in in terms of a uh, more layman's uh, aspect. But um, I think, I think we're already, fortunately, in most cases, you you probably, if we have to work with people as they face adversity, we're already in a good population. So, and it could be argued that people who do not have grit are not going to be searching for coaches, um, training as hard at high levels already. So, we're probably talking about, you know, the, the, the best of the best in terms of grit and what's going on there. Uh, the other thing I was going to add was when this conversation happens, um, I have an agenda when I, uh, that it's written down when I talk to new athletes and I try to go through all of those things. And I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like I have that conversation up front, at least around like how their numbers are going to look like. There's going to be a point where things start to taper off. It's pretty early on. And and so uh, I'd admit I don't really have the conversation around crashing because I don't really want to uh, spook them. And, you know, some guys might not crash for a long time. Um so it just, I think I, I usually hold off on that conversation until it actually happens, but there's enough overlap with the other types of things that uh, could be going on there with this, as far as like, um, I mean, there's the crash conversation is a, is a good overlap with illness. It has a good overlap with like coming back from vacation has could overlap with, you know, starting your season up after, after the winter uh, so if they have enough wherewithal to get through those things, there is probably a good chance they'll be able to get through other things. And again, that just kind of gets, gets back to the conversation around grit. Um, you guys, anything to add to that? <laughs> deep, deep breath, uh, yeah, deep no. breath. No. <laughs> uh, I, um, yeah, no, I think the, yeah, the, the grit's going to be a big, and it's like we were talking about with the cold things before, you're already looking at the, as you said, the a population of people that if they're in this sport at a high level, they're already pretty good at, at that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, the, the main takeaway I would have from this is just as a coach, you can't underestimate your role in the athlete's psychology in terms of how they're coming back from things like this because they are yeah sort of relying on you for the 
prescription of what to do each day um if that's suddenly taken away along with other things being taken away when you have a crash then um yeah that can can yeah really affect the athletes i think as a coach yeah, it's it's important to understand that you do have a big role in the recovery hmm no. well i we've gone through all the topics um that we want to discuss today um i don't think you guys had anything else on top of other than that uh i can open up the conversation to those in the audience if anyone cares to raise their hand and uh open up a topic be happy to do that um otherwise i think we're going to bring this first episode of the cycling performance club podcast to an end um before i do that i think i will have all the panelists uh kind of share their um details in terms of like where to find them what how to how to find out more about them uh why don't you go damien if you want to find out more about what i do semiprocycling.com there you go and cyrus (laughs) for me uh find me on instagram or twitter which is just cyrus monk there's not too many of those in the world and then my website cyclistscientist.com and uh cyrus is c-y-r-u-s um and for me you can check out my website at boyntoncoaching.com you can also find me on instagram with boynton underscore coaching and i'm trying to think if i'm anywhere else and you can follow all of us here on clubhouse and um yeah that's uh i think that's a wrap guys um and if you want to if you want to join in the conversation we meet on clubhouse regularly and you can raise any of your own questions yep you should be able to find out uh when we are scheduling talks by joining the cycling performance club on clubhouse and uh thanks and uh, thanks for the panel for joining me today and we'll uh see you guys soon Mm -hmm.